Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, jumping in to tell you about this week's episode of Meat and Three, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food roundup. This week, we're introducing you to some amazing women taking a stand. So often, being sexually harassed feels like a loss of control, and so I wanted to have these very tangible guides to say, here's what you can do. Others are pushing for more diversity at major food industry events. I still feel really determined to do, you know, whatever I can to help shift that and in a direction that's not just more diverse, but more equitable. We also have a report on that summer business staple, the lemonade stand. The lemonade stand might be the purest form of starting a business. Low overhead, easy to get into, and requires little experience or special equipment. Don't miss Meat and Three, your weekly 15-minute food news roundup from HRN. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Search M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. And thanks, as always, for listening. Hello, you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. This is your host, Dana Cowan. Each week, I interview an extraordinary person in the hospitality industry who inspires me with their creativity, both in their professional life and in their personal life. Some people handle the curves really well, and I want to follow them on that road. On today's show, I'm interviewing a woman who made her name as executive chef at one of the most popular and most important new American restaurants in the country, and then further cemented her icon status doing collabs with artists and farmers, and also famously turned down an opportunity, if you want to call it that, to appear on IvancaTrump.com. Today, my guest is Angela Demiuga. Welcome, Angela. Did I butcher your name anyway, even though I asked you five seconds ago how you to pronounce it? You did well. No. <laughs> That's Great job. Hi. Phew. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> That's me. Um, we've known each other ever since you came to New York, really, to uh, cook at Mission Chinese. Yeah. And uh, you became the executive chef there after having been at Vinegar Hill House, where I know that uh, that was really a formative time for you. But I'm going to dial way back. And instead (laughs) of starting with your uh, cooking career, I want to start with your childhood, because you are the second youngest of six siblings, which I find very difficult to imagine, Mm -hmm. um, of Filipino parents who immigrated to the States in the 70s and settled in the San Francisco area all what you know, because it was your life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd love to hear about um, growing up in, in that time and place. I, I love that your touch, touch points, food-wise, are so diverse, from yeah. McDonald's, because your father was a manager there, to Jacques Pepin, because you <laughs> watched him on TV, to one of my um, favorite books, which is that gross goodies oh, book. It's your favorite. <laughs> Amazing. Well, cause it, it's because yeah. of my son. Like, he, yeah. you know, he yeah. had me cooking from that. Uh, 
I use cooking with air quotes, (laughs) (laughs) but like, I feel like, you know, those influences actually map out your future of food because Mm. it's, you know, somewhat (laughs) dystopian, somewhat Uh technique driven and really all American. So take, take me back to that childhood in the uh, late eighties. Yeah. So I grew up in San Jose in California. Um, and, uh, I have, five siblings. So a lot of my entertainment as a child was based around my interactions with them. Um, Video games, toys, Happy Meals. We had a whole chest of drawers in our garage filled with Happy Meal toys. Um, I had an older brother, so we had a Nintendo. And then we had TV that we were allowed to watch sometimes, but it really, us playing together was how we socialized. Um, in my family, there are six kids with um, a five-year gap between us. So we were called like the big kids and little kids. So oh. three big kids, five-year gap, three little kids, and um, we weren't we were uh, weren't wealthy growing up. And when my older siblings um, were old enough to uh, work at the mall and at the um, at like Raging Waters or Great America, the theme park. Uh, they would kind of, you know, they wanted to dress us up like little dolls. They would buy us clothes from like Old Navy and um, put us in cool outfits. It was really sweet. That is really sweet. Yeah. And were they cool? I'm, they were I, cool. Yeah. They, I learned a lot from them. I feel like I, I was kind of like, I felt cool in the second grade because I learned a lot from my older siblings. Um, so that was like fashion and music. And they had their own distinct style that was very San Jose. Um, so what does that mean? That I meant, just, yeah. Well, that meant it was like, so San Jose is um, a very, there's a lot of, it's very diverse. There's a lot of Mexican culture um, and different types of Asian people. Um, so uh, a lot of the fashion growing up was influenced by like maybe like Mexican or Chicano street style. So a lot of like handkerchiefs and like um, Dickies and like Nike Cortezes and like oversized um, canvas belts, which like Vetmont had started to do like a few years ago. I'm, I'm, I don't wear them, but I know that that for me was referential to being a kid in San Jose. Um, and so, you know, my older brother, when he had more money at the mall, he'd have a beeper. So I had a beeper when I was in high school. It was, it was like a fashion, um, thing, but it, a lot of it was just hand-me-downs or things that they bought us for cheap because it came in mini sizes for children. Um, but they totally influenced my musical taste as well. Um, and so that was like a great, um, that was, a, that was a great like place at home where I could be influenced from an older generation. Um, but then also feel like a kid with my siblings that was, um, I have a sibling that's uh, less than a year older than me. So we call ourselves like Irish twins. Um, we have, we're the same, um, we have the same birthday for three, or we have the same age for three days out of the year. <laughs> and then I have a little brother. Um, so it's funny because I feel like out of my entire, um, group of siblings, um, me and my brother, my little brother have a lot of the same interests as far as like music and social issues go. We, we have a lot of commonality, um, with us as like the younger set, the babies in the family. That is such a striking image. And as, um, you know, as your life has gone on, your sense of style has become so heavily identified with you. Like you're one of the most stylish people 
ever, period, full stop. <laughs> and then add that to the like chef culinary world, like mm-hmm. that probably puts you on the Mount Olympus <laughs> of style because it's not really. But yeah. I love the idea that it started with your siblings because yeah. usually people's siblings, when you put together 90s siblings and mm-hmm. mall, you don't usually come up with. I felt very like individual. I mean, yeah. even with interest, my interest in cooking and watching, you know, um, you you read this that I, I would wake up in the morning on Saturdays and watch Jacques Pepin. Um, that was something I cannot, would kind of do on my own. Um, you know, it didn't matter which sibling was around me. That was something I wanted to put on. I and wanted. Where to- did that come from? Like because that does seem slightly unusual. Yeah, I don't really know. I mean, I feel I've, I've shared this before that I feel really lucky that I don't feel like I had to choose this uh, as far as cooking. It was just something that was embedded in me. Uh, which I know, you know, when, you know, we're thinking about college, uh, I didn't really struggle with f- trying to figure out who I am um, as far as career path goes. Um, I mean, I, I kind of always just followed my intuition and I felt very sure of myself, even at a really young age and very, like what my parents say is brave or like strong-willed. Um, and so I Had, think... Did, did those qualities ever get you in trouble? That brave, strong-willed? When I view my past as a kid or like, being in high school or in college where it might I might be difficult I don't I didn't view myself as being difficult um I think my it stressed my parents out a little bit but they you know till this day my it's it's with my mom and dad my dad very much believes that like if I had made any choice for myself he would trust that I'm making a good decision for myself and that happened through the years that that wasn't always the case but it was because I was always pushing and challenging them to accept some some aspect of who I am like I would bring in as a kid I would bring in a neighbor that I just became friends with on the street and we were like playing and suddenly the kid would be in our house and my mom's like did you did you tell anyone (laughs) that this is happening I'm like I thought it was okay um so that that you know that idea of kind of doing whatever I felt was right was something I did as as a kid and that meant you know watching Bob Ross on tv as well like a painter and like replicating that um, to watching like Jacques Pepin and then also like being interested in video games and things like cooking. I was always poking my nose into the kitchen. We all had tasks that we had to do as chores and um, I think they all liked that I wanted to help and it wasn't for me it didn't seem like a chore because I just wanted to figure out uh, what it was like to like touch chicken wings and bread them in cornstarch and you know, there we had a babysitter that had that used MSG in our cooking as a kid, and I remember like seeing salt, pepper for the wings, and this other thing that I didn't know what it was. It was MSG, and like looking at it, I'm like, it looks like long salt, and it tastes good. Just like <laughs> real, like thinking about those kid things as a child, being like, what is this, and why is this here? And um, like long salt meaning like MSG when you buy. MSG from a grocery store, it looks like salt, but like long strips. Really? Yeah, because like we've never seen. Um, yeah, MSG, MSG. And, and I'd never really seen it after. I mean, we stopped using it, um, but that was something that was in my cupboard growing up. Um, you know, we would we would do salt and pepper and MSG chicken wings, and it was it wasn't a thing. And then I learned later that it, it wasn't. A thing. It's actually a thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, um, I mean, one of the recipes that you became known for was uh, your grandmother's mm-hmm. chicken. Yeah. Um, were there tons of family recipes at your house? Um, there were. We all of my siblings are very into food. Um, I I love that. That's fun for me. That that means when I was cooking professionally, I didn't really need to explain why and. 
um, what I was doing. Um, they were a little weirded out when I was working for a Chinese restaurant. They're like, I don't get it. But then they like <laughs> got it once they saw a press package. This was like way before I started. Um, but um, they all nerd out on different recipes. Um, it's really fun. And so, um, you know, my little brother might know what's happening with a chef friend of mine because of an article he published. Um, or we all had different um, recipes that we were interested in that we'd bring to the table which meant that the food was very multicultural. I remember when I was a child, I was um, one of my signature dishes as a kid. When I was 10 was a spinach salad with strawberries and um, raspberry vinaigrette yeah. with um, a mustard sauce. I feel like I recognize that dish. Yeah, That's, classic. Um, classic, classic. Almonds, yeah. sliced almonds. And yeah. so that was something that, uh, you know, when I was a kid, we would... We all had our dishes that we were sort of known for. I and mean, so can we, we just pause there? The notion of the 10-year-old <laughs> with a signature dish, and this is before Top Junior, like by a long, long shot. Yeah, and our resources were funny resources. Like that recipe came from a paper-bound uh, recipe book that my aunt, I think maybe in her church group, circulated, and then she gave it to me. But then I was making up my own recipes, too, that were gross, like um, making up my own candy, and that meant like you know, putting water droplets in like iced tea mix or something like that and then drying it. Like it was just like what you could play with and like what you're allowed to play with. So gross things like that because you're like five and then you don't know that that's not how you cook. And then, you know, I get a little bit older and there's an apple tree in our backyard. I'm like, oh, I want to make a baked apple with cinnamon and I'm allowed to use a toaster and uh, I know where the sugar is. So I would wrap a peeled apple in um, foil, like as a really young kid, and then put it in the toaster oven for a really long time. So it was just playing. Right. Um, it was basically a toy, also, you know. Um, and that was allowed. I mean, um, and I think actually, if it wasn't allowed, you probably would have done it anyway. And yeah, like, that's true. You know, You're this right. is the yeah. ask forgiveness later thing. Like, yeah. Oh, but I don't know. It just seemed like apple toaster was there. Yeah, you know, it seemed like it was okay. Well, it was okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, your your father intrigues me. First of all, being an um, an immigrant uh, from the Philippines, and then having a strong-willed daughter, and giving her the leash, you mm -hmm, know, to do mm -hmm. what she wanted. But um, I, that's so. I mean, I don't, Admiral is not the right word, but it's great. Yeah. Um, but then he was a, a manager at McDonald's, and yeah. I, I feel like you have gotten his sense of hustle, right? He yeah. had a tremendous sense yeah. of hustle. So what was like watching your dad yeah. hustle in that McDonald's, mm -hmm. you know? My dad was busy all the time, and um, it would be a regular sort of when I would see him, but we had a special connection. I mean, I was close with all of my family members. We all had our own moments. Um, but I remember as a kid, um, my dad... You know, we all wouldn't sit down and eat dinner together. On Sundays, we would. After church, we would eat lunch um, or an early dinner. But um, during the week, um, we would all sort of eat whenever it was convenient. Um, that meant my mom had a pot of food on the stove and always steamed rice going. Um, I liken this to, like, the coffee pot at work yeah. where you, like, <laughs> just always refill the rice uh, cooker. Um, and so you could kind of serve yourself whenever. And my dad, if he would end work late, that meant he was having dinner by himself and I had already eaten. So I would sit with him and just watch him eat and just chat with him and um, just ask him about how he was doing. And our, our special time that we would have together was going to the grocery sort of late at night and um, we would shop for the whole family. So that means we were there for at least an hour, like filling up this huge supermarket cart. And then I get to ask for certain things or help him grab things. So usually I like to go too because that meant I would be able to select one thing that I could purchase for myself. And then we would share it in the car like a pack of Starburst or something like that. Um, but that was our, our fun, like us time. And then 
Um, you know, it's been fun as an adult asking him about his own memories of that. Um, and also asking him about his career in food because he was very... Uh, he supports, my parents have supported me in all my decision making, but I remember initially when I did think about going to culinary school um, and working in restaurants, he was very adamant about sharing that it's unglamorous. And I think that was really um, important for him to say, not because he knew it was going on foodie, food media, Food Network was sort of starting, but it was totally just per a personal um, experience that he wanted to share with me that um, it's it's going to be difficult and your life will be difficult if that's something you want to do. But uh, I've definitely heard it and received the information, but I always knew that I wanted to become a chef. And I've shared stories about me having really intense visuals and visions of me being an adult chef. Um, but Wait, you know, where did those come from? Like that just came from daydreaming. And they were very visceral, but I became obsessed with them because they were so visceral. It wasn't just a regular daydream. It was... I could I could still put it in my head right now what I saw as a what 10 did you year old. see it was me in a car zooming around in a city on a chef errand and I didn't have an indication of what I'm wearing that I was a chef I knew I was older because I had glasses and longer hair <laughs> that for me as a child because I had a bob and no glasses then yeah. um, meant that I was older um, but it also meant that I was living in a city um, and I, I like this idea that I wasn't in like a kitchen or in chef clothes because I think that helped me understand that it didn't have to be this linear idea of what I had been seeing on TV through Jacques Pepin or on Food Network even um, and that it, it could be any version of like that adult version of me uh, was abstracted in some way. However, there was um, me looking at myself, um, you know, from like third person um, in, a, in a car, but it, it meant that I was, I think, doing well and that um, that version of working in the food industry could be abstracted because it, um, it wasn't this clear image of me like chopping something in the kitchen. Because I was, you know, I've chopped things as a kid, but it wasn't me chopping things. It was me doing some, quote unquote, like important work. Um, but yeah. So um, we can skip ahead mm -hmm. to, you know, when you were at Mission Chinese, you really did pull yourself, well, you both were in the weeds, mm -hmm. right? Developing mm -hmm. recipes, yeah. incredible sense of leadership and team, mm -hmm. um, but also abstracted, like yeah. in the big picture, um, what does this place look like? Yeah. What is the, what is the, um, what's the point of view? How are mm -hmm. we treating our guests? Yeah. A sense of hospitality. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I've loved to to talk about that a little bit. Let's start with some of the dishes that yeah. you're known for. Mm -hmm. um, what is your, what's the favorite creation of yours from the, from that time period? Yeah, from that time. Um, I really loved my grandmother's chicken. Um, it's very difficult to execute, but it was, it was um, a good story. I think for that time period for me personally as a chef as well, because uh, around the time that, I was um, getting trained at the San Francisco location um, at the beginning of my job. Um, you know, I was able to be around my family more than I had been in years because I was a cook and unable to travel. And I got set up with a date for my mom to learn how to um, cook the dish directly from my grandmother, which no one in my family and I have, I think there's like 40 of us in my mom's side of the family has gotten that lesson really, except for, I think it was just me and my, maybe my mom would watch her growing up doing it, but uh, it was very set up. My mom picked me up, she had all the ingredients in the back of her trunk and then we made it together and 
Um, my grandmother turned 100 this year and passed away. So it was like an important moment in my life. And I was making it for friends um, before the restaurant opened upstate. And then um, we decided to put it on the menu. And um, that was big for me just because that meant I was digging into my, my personal identity, which um, really influences, I think, you know, when we talk later about all of the different influences I have, it's really just about what is driving me and to learn how or to make a gra- my grandmother's dish there and, and share it with a lot of people. It's nerve wracking and very difficult to execute. Uh, what it makes to be it perfect. difficult to execute? Well, it's the process. It's it's basically like building a galantine or a terrine at the same time. So you uh, will have to take the chicken and debone it at the spine, remove the rib cage, and then stuff it with like a, a sausage that you have to make um, that has a lot of different ingredients like pickles and raisins, and it's flavored like um, it's flavor. It like it just has like really strong flavors that you have to nail. Um, chorizo flavors and then it you set eggs down the middle of it so when you roast the whole bird you get this golden exterior um, perfectly cooked juicy meat on the interior and then this sausage filling with the cross-section of eggs so it was very technique driven it was fun to do that there because it was also important to me because uh, at, at Vinegar Hill I was exploring a lot of um, French and Italian influence and then to know that, I, you know, when I was doing terrine work there, that was really, um, it was really intense process to learn and I was really good at it. Um, to apply that to a Filipino recipe and understand that that was just part of my upbringing as well and just tech, as technique driven also just made me revere um, technical cooking within Filipino cuisine that I think a lot of people don't normally associate with. Um, so that was already breaking down ideas for myself about what, um, is important in food and if you you know and all the stigmas around different cultures of cuisine and how people perceive their own value to different cultures and cuisine and it so it started you know then evolving years later into understanding that the way that we had to price things at an Asian restaurant meant that we were having to talk for me I wasn't talking about this so much at the restaurant but I was thinking about it actively and being really theoretical that you know, there are ideas around systemic racism, around food and cultures that um, I wanted to address when I had the platform to start talking about the food that I was making. Because one, it was interesting for me to do that, um, for me to have a dialogue with uh, the own, my own work that I was doing and explain it. Because I think that transparency and that ex- self-exploration is super self-empowering, but also really important for why we're doing what we're doing. I mean, I think we, uh, when we talk about um, food in general, especially in New York City, it's like everyone wants a new restaurant to open and then they want to eat it and take a picture of it and then move on to the next thing. And for me, there was always um, work to be done in the evolution of our own craft and my own craft. And a lot of that was uh, seeking out my own personal identity, politics, and why I'm navigating the world uh, the way that I am because uh, – for for me, it was just important to do that. So when you when you say that, do you is it another way of saying when you created that um, that dish, which was um, technique driven, and um, I don't know if you would use the word elevate, but mm-hmm. elevates the Filipino food yeah. and flavors yeah. that you know and love, mm-hmm. and from coming from your family, that bringing it into this mission world mm-hmm. um, and sharing it with so many people 
in your eyes was also elevating all Filipino culture at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And then also I'm wondering whether you were landing on the question of price slash value, mm-hmm. right? Because what you could charge at mission mm-hmm. versus what people perceive to be the value of ethnic food. Mm-hmm. There's this con- there's a tension yeah. mm-hmm. um, in the restaurant world yeah. between like what is the most you can charge yeah. if it's an ethnic food. Was that part of it, like adding a, a monetary value to something that you were um, creating? From Absolutely. That was part of, um, that was just part of my job even at um, our, our smaller restaurant um, that was 40 seats. It was always trying to figure out ways that um, people would not complain about paying however much for Asian food. Um, so that was always part of our constant dialogue. And, um, you know, elevating the cuisine at a larger restaurant that felt like more of a banquet hall that for me right away when I wanted to build that menu, I wanted that menu to really um, have a full spectrum of different, uh, a full spectrum of offerings. And it could be uh, for... It could be for a special occasion or it could be for um, just like a beer and fried rice um, opportunity um, for an evening. And so um, when I thought about the range of the food that we wanted to present, um, certain dishes had to make up the cost of others. For example, if I wanted to serve really great beluga caviar, um, I knew that the labor cost for that meant I was just sourcing something in a really great package that I selected and um, figured out how to plate it. Um, but it, for me, didn't mean that I wanted to chi- charge a lot of money for that because I wanted it to be accessible for people. Um, and so there, would, there could be lost leaders where, um, you know, a fried rice dish, say it costed a dollar, um, it's, it's, it's not crazy to ask for maybe $12 for this fried rice. And that kind of balances out so it makes it more accessible. And, you know, Definitely the, the price point for that restaurant didn't mean that everyone can go there all the time, but I think that it was a good price point for wanting to spend money on a night out. And those were all things I was thinking about, which is why thinking about stigmas around ethnic food was also a really important conversation because that conversation happened anytime we put a noodle dish on or anytime we put a rice dish on. Because of potential pushback. Back, pushback, yeah. yeah. And, and a lot of that was just the sheer... Um, you know, the sheer idea about, you know, people wanting to spend more money on an Italian noodle dish versus an Asian noodle dish. And so this was, so I think that really jump-started a lot of um, theory for me, participating in a chi- like a Chinese restaurant that wasn't my concept. Um, and so I wanted to put my name on what evolution of that was. And that meant you know, serving it in a, in a space that uh, was really holistic, where um, the so context of the food matched, yeah, yeah, matched the environment of the restaurant. Um, for a second. So two things you said. Uh, one is that it wasn't entirely your concept, right? Mm-hmm, because yeah. you were working with Danny Bowen. Mm-hmm. He was the um, figurehead and chef, mm-hmm. co-chef. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you would describe that. Um, how was it working with someone where it, you developed so many of the dishes Mm -hmm. and over time it became clear that it was your food and a lot of your vision, but it didn't start out that way. No, it didn't start out that way. Um, the restaurant became famous for Sichuan flavors and I had never had Sichuan food before I started working with the company. So, um, that meant for me when I, when I was starting my work with the brand, it was a creative juncture for me. I, I, 
um, had been working in a restaurant where I was really satisfied and happy with the amount of work and leadership that I had. But um, knowing that I was going to be doing something I've never done before was exciting to me. And that's kind of what I end up doing. I end up doing these challenging jobs that I surprised myself with. And that was something like cooking Asian food professionally was not something I had planned for myself. And that was exciting to me to learn about that and then see how initially it was always about how can I be this like great compliment. But then I realized over time, a compliment a com- to Danny. Yeah. A compliment. Yeah. Or to the dishes. So say like a really spicy dish. How do I make a great compliment for that? That's like just as delicious that matches it. Um, but then I realized that, you know, having complimentary dishes isn't really the way, especially if you're um, becoming very creative. It's like, okay, how can I just push this further and further along? And um, I got to play a lot more within the confines of a 130-seat restaurant, which had a lot more visibility at that time. So, And then working with Danny, was that hard? It ended up that you didn't have the opportunity to grow that you were looking for. But is that something that you felt all along or... Well, no, I didn't know that it would turn out that way. However, I think w- my work that I accomplished was a lot more than I thought I would be able to accomplish working for somebody else. Um, so, you know, the amount of col- collaboration I would do, um, the type of creative works that I would do, um, I was really, I was able to really look inside about why I was making food in general and what I liked about food and how, I, you know, it became a lot more about. Uh, who I get to work with and um, it wasn't just chefs and what can inspire cooking and what can inspire restaurants and what can inspire working relationships where you can make something that you just had no idea you would ever be interested in making because you're just working with another creative brain. So um, I want to talk about the notion of hospitality because that was also part of your vision when you talk about the restaurant being holistic expression Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and you've talked about Mission being a queer restaurant and Mm -hmm. how important it was to train the staff to understand what that meant. Yeah. Um, I'd love to hear more about that. Um, That really started in the early stages of Mission where um, a lot of the people, including myself, had been in new positions that they'd never had before. So a lot of people hadn't been in the restaurant industry or if they were a host, they'd never been a host before. If they were a server, they'd never been a server. And coincidentally, the people that all... Uh, ended up working with us where a lot of them were uh, identified as queer or gay and I'm gay too so I it was just like our our very like weirdo family that we brought together Um, and that means we were all helping each other out with like what we wanted the the vibe to be like at the restaurant and um, you know for example we would kind of make fun of ourselves we would call like the the walkway where cooks and servers needed to walk through all day. We called it like freak alley. It was just like our <laughs> world. Um, and it was very us. And, um, you know, right away we knew we were creating an ecosystem that was just, that was ours that we wanted to protect as well. And so I remember one of the first employees that we actually brought from San Francisco to New York. She was a person that I got along with when I was in San Francisco training. Her name is Suki. We, I was like, you got to come help us open up the New York location. Uh, I remember she was struggling with the manager at the time because the manager that we hired that we just started to get to know um, wanted to serve, was training people to serve wine um, in a specific way that meant serving wine to what he was instructing women first. 
which is already like problematic because you also, for me, you know, years later, uh, I would I would think about that, um, you know, you wouldn't necessarily assume someone's gender identity just from looking at them, and that was um, inconsiderate. So not it wasn't just about femininity. It was all just about the gender spectrum later, but uh, that was something that was like an early battle that we had to talk about, and it made me really think about how there's an opportunity to really do things the way that we wanted, um, and it wasn't about taking cues from other restaurant groups. It was like, okay, how do we, what do we feel uncomfortable with and how are we going to make ourselves feel comfortable? And so those were like little things that we were doing from the early, uh, from the early uh, years of the restaurant in New York City. Um, And those are all things that I I attempted to continue. Um, And something that's important for me, just because I was trying to create a place that was, um, a great place for even just me as an individual to be, let alone others. Um, so that was something that I just required for myself and required to make time for to listen to that, you know, um, debate and then figure out how we can work around that and not do those things that we had been taught. Right. It, it's, um, it's great to unlearn the lessons, but to examine them first, mm-hmm. right? You can't throw everything out. You yeah. Don't. You need to know why mm-hmm. and, um, and what makes a difference mm-hmm. and to you know, find that truth or, or peaceful spot for yourself. We're going to take um, a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, your inspiration in art, music, um, fashion, and how that all comes together, both in the restaurants, but in your brand new job mm-hmm. um, at The Standard. Because though to this point, you've been identified um, as a chef and as a collaborator, this next role that you've taken on is uh, even greater than that, giving you more latitude to express yourself and um, bring your very personal uh, sensibility to an even, you know, you said 130 seats, that was big. Mm -hmm. Well, now the empire that you (laughs) oversee, I don't know how many beds there are or how many seats in those restaurants, but we'll we'll come back to that after a, a quick break. about what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound. What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy saltwater? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass, long chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. Happy to have you guys today as I speak with Angela Demiuga, who is now at The Standard um, with a 
really fabulous title. Um, <laughs> food and culture. Yeah. So yeah. Creative director of food and culture. Creative director. So I feel like you have been a creative director since you were putting together rad outfits in <laughs> San Jose. And I always feel very self-conscious saying words like rad because I feel like I, I can't own them. But I feel like it's just true for you. And I deconstructed your outfit before you, you know, um, before we got on the air because I wanted to know everything. But something that you did at uh, Mission Chinese was bring artists into the space and really mm-hmm. collaborate. And then outside of the space, even when you were working there, you were doing really interesting um collabs mm-hmm. uh, with your friends. Yeah. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts about um, where from within you this desire to collaborate comes from. Well, I just from my personality, I'm very much of a busybody. And a lot <laughs> of the friendships that I have, I think um, the strongest friendships that I have have always been friendships where we're working on a project together. Um, and so I what's really, an example of that? Like any, like, for example, um, my friend Jen Shear, who is an artist who does a lot of collage work. Um, I've been friends with her for maybe, uh, 14 years, 13 years, um, from New York city. And, um, she eventually moved to Oakland and LA. And when I went out to LA, I did an artist residency at this gallery called 356 Mission, and she just moved there. So I was like, what are we going to make together? Like, let's make something. But she's a collage artist and definitely in a medium that I'm not familiar with, but we always talk about food and we always talk about Asian food. She's Taiwanese, of Taiwanese descent, and so we ended up doing a workshop for 90 kids out in L.A. where we um, challenged kids to think about food not just for flavor but for um like food as a visual element and sculptural. And so we ended up um, making these, Jen Jen and I ended up making these sculptures of these vegetables like cabbage the dog or like broccoli (laughs) the dog and had that as display. Um, And then that already gets the kids excited about what they were going to make and they were making these rice ball characters. Everyone was given a rice ball and then had uh, tables of like nori and different types of ingredients to decorate their rice ball and give it a name and give it a story. Um, and so that's what we ended up doing together. So it's really, it becomes really abstract, but she's someone that I've always just loved. And we're like, how can we, it really solidifies, in my opinion, a friendship. And I think a lot of people have maybe sometimes have this notion of like not trying to mix business and pleasure. But for me, the work that I do is so pleasurable and can be um, done in, you know, it's cooking. So we all have to cook and we all have to eat. So we all have a relationship to the food, to food. And for me, it gives this this earnest type of power with food that we all can harness at any point if that's something that we want to share and be social about. And so other, I mean, you're friends with DJs and um, fashion designers, you know, mm-hmm. quite um, strikingly. Mm-hmm. In the uh, the work that you're about to do, can you talk yeah, about sure. like what you're thinking about for the standard, which traditionally, um, right, it's a total... Uh, I learned from you that it's been around 20 years. Mm-hmm. I guess I could have researched that. That's okay. And, um, <laughs> and I have loved their graphics, right? They yeah. have, um, they're cheeky. Mm-hmm. Um, they were way ahead of the curve in, in doing that. But they also had a somewhat siloed approach. Like it was very nightlife-y. Mm-hmm. And then F&B was sort of slotted in. Yeah. And you've come with a completely different uh, yeah. point of view. Yeah, so... Um, that was their initial interest. The brand, they were, they were interested in me because I was approaching food in a, in a very, like, in my own way. 
Um, and originally, when I um, started working with the brand, it was it was just in December. I did a dinner uh, for art for Art Basel down there in Miami, and um, I ended up doing a dinner in collaboration with ACLU, and there were fashion designers and artists who made. Uh, designs for that were donated to ACLU so they could have a merch line. So like imagine a white sweatshirt. It was done by public school. They used the font for the USAD Dream, Ch- Dream Team and they replaced it with the words DACA on it. So that was really cool. So that was something that felt very me and I had my first like really great experience with the standard um, doing a really grounded event during, you know, the, the craziness of Art Basel. And so um, moving forward... I ended up meeting the CEO and we ended up getting along and I had just told him about all the weird projects I've been getting involved <laughs> in, doing like food design for Paris Fashion Week or... Well, what does that mean? That meant I was working with a production team and a hired chef and the creative director of the fashion label. It was uh, for Kenzo. Uh, these are the same creative directors of opening ceremony. They had this whole surprise dinner planned instead of a runway show. You would get your invitation and... Um, instead of just sitting through a runway show, you actually got seated in this beautiful chateau. Uh, we set up these tables um, that looked like it just had really elaborate flower displays. But when you like looked a little closer, you realized that we had hidden food um, within all of these beautiful uh, exotic fruit and flower displays. And you would kind of, quote unquote, have to forage for your food. Um, and the reason why we did that is because they just launched a new line that was... Um, inspired by Henry Rousseau's paintings, um, the jungle in particular with the tiger and the woman. And so we were replicating that scene in a dinner setting um, at a chateau. So that was really fun. So, you know, I told them about, I'd just come in from Paris to visit in Lon- the, the site in London and just talked about all the different things that I'd been doing, my work with activists and farmers, just everything I was interested in. And instead of um, um, offering a restaurant um, concept or um, to become a restaurant partner with them, they actually, the, the CEO, Amar, just actually asked me if I was interested in maybe having my own title that they would create specifically for me, which is creative director. Initially, he said um, culinary, and as we learned it, as we got to know each other, um, my work that I want to do within the food industry is really link it to culture. So it was important for me to adjust the title to food and culture because I think uh, culture speaks to uh, activism, culture speaks to politics, art uh, relates, art is influenced by politics, and so is food. Um, so all of that, um, for me, uh, is is my interest, and I think it, it also then links uh, the relevancy of like what food is as a tool in all of these different categories. Something that I know you're interested in is the, as we all should be, but the the wellness of staff, right? When I when I think about some of the really critical issues in the um, hospitality industry, mm-hmm. it's work life balance mm-hmm. um, and you know, harassment mm-hmm. um, and uh, equity, yeah. And these are all issues that concern uh, are of concern to you. Are there specific things that you're doing within the standard? within those? Um, right now, we're not. I'm not really um, digging deep in that category because, from what I know, we're doing it quite well, as far as That's I great. know. <laughs> and so, um, you know, knowing that, you know, with the CEO, knowing that that's what drives me as well, um, I think it wasn't. Um, 
he he wasn't shy to ask me to come on board because um, of um, you know those those tasks are I mean those um, topics are super important to me and um, the standard has always been very vocal about um, their own activism that that's completely in line with what the brand is already like I remember I went to um, a uh, orientation session just to see how people are onboarded at that onboarded at the high line and I was really impressed about how diverse the new employees are uh, and and um, you know we all got to share our names and and where we come from and um, I was really really impressed with that and I, I think um, the the only thing that I I think was like a, a bit of feedback that I ended up telling him about was uh, again, like usage of gender pronouns. Like I was sitting next to a gay male and a, a person that identifies as um, trans. And so I was just thinking about what that would be like for them. And that the thing is like those, those movements that I want to make, they're not um, singular to issues that are just in restaurants. It's just in the world. So um, it's great because I feel comfortable to share that in- feedback and know that that's something that can get messaged uh, starting in New York and then translate to the other properties, which I think is a really satisfying part of my job. So when I, I look at um, your career to date uh, and I see how fluidly you've navigated from from the outside, it looks so mm-hmm. f- fluid. Um, what do you think is the inner resource that you draw upon that allows you to you know move with such grace through all of you know, you've had very challenging things. The split with Danny can't have been easy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just forging your own way. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I think that what's helped me really trust my own instinct um, is my just general curiosity. And that curiosity is very earnest. And it, um, again, like with food, I mentioned food can relate to anyone. And, and it can relate to just one aspect of food and one type of food or childhood food or suburban food. You could really talk with anyone about food and um, food then becomes a vehicle to have other powerful conversations. Um, and so I think that uh, amount of curiosity that I've always had allowed me to be very humbled too to speak with somebody that uh, I would normally had thought was out of my league. I think um, you know, you mentioned the Ivanka Trump article, I mean, um, the I, I, Ivanka Trump request. And for me, that was very powerful for myself because uh, I was able to identify why I wanted to, um, why I wanted to decline the request and specifically why. And that allowed me to feel more purpose-driven in the collaborations that I do and the work that I do. I feel, felt like after that, I didn't really have to explain to people who I am. So and, how, do you, how do you generalize that for people who are listening? Like, mm-hmm. That notion of clarifying who you are, is that like, was that a, a literal process that you went through? Like, if I'm going to say no to this, I want to align around what my personal values are. And Yeah, I felt misunderstood because I was getting this request that mm. also people just hadn't been doing their research. They just see me as like, oh, she has a great personality and sense of style and she's a su- successful chef. So that's something that maybe we want to capitalize on. And if they had dug even like, deeper, even just like read some of the captions on my Instagram, they would have known that I wasn't the person that's going to represent their brand um, and um, and the president. And so I just spelled that out for them that 
this is who I am. Here are the topics that you don't care about. And here's what we've been protesting about. Um, and literally the things that I mentioned were things that were on our, our signs that we made. And so that just, for me, was just a clear place to um, really honestly surprise myself as well because it was just a note that I dropped in to an inbox, but then it was important for me to just publish it on my um, social media account on Instagram, and I'm not that active on social media. However, a lot of people know they can communicate with me there, so it was a friend update, and the response to that was really amazing, and it made me feel like a lot more confident in being who I, being the person that I am, and um, and asking people to collaborate with me in general because I didn't ha- I had to I can just go directly to the topic that we were interested in without having to describe who I am and talk about a bio. <laughs> I, what I love about this is in companies, and I've been working in a couple of startups, there's a lot of conversation around like, what is the mission? You know, de- define the goals, outline them. As a human, you know, one doesn't do that as much, but in the same way, like in a company, you need to be able to say yes or no to things because yeah. they adhere or do not adhere to the mission. It's actually true as a, as a person, um, whether you're um, well-known as you are or you're just trying to decide if you want to give money to one charity over another charity or you right. want to vacation somewhere, you want to eat somewhere to, to understand what your values are because even as you eat, you're expressing those values, that those dollars that you spend are supporting um, values as well. Yeah. So I'm fascinated by failure because... Uh, I mean, there's so many like micro failures that I feel I've made along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any failure that you feel like you've confronted and had to come back from? Yeah, I feel like also with collaboration, you really learn. Um, you learn what your bandwidth is. You learn about what the creative process is for the other person. Um, they're kind of like a multitude of like small failures, but they're all things that you learn, like I can learn and bounce back from. Um, you know, I, I realized that I had a sense of urgency to create and produce a lot last year at my last year at mission. Um, not because of my, of the timeline necessarily. It was almost like this, um, this inner, in, like inner feeling of, Hey, here's what I'm doing here at this restaurant. But Um, In order for me to feel creatively liberated, I need to do as much as possible also around it. So um, it was just sort of like, you know, like failures to my own time, Mm -hmm. like, you know, not making space for myself to sort of recuperate. And that's like, I I think, a a chef issue. But um, I've learned to be really good at that. And then having now like a a six month period where I was freelancing, um, I realized that I really appreciate the structure that um, a job like a restaurant gives you, even though it, it's crazy and you work a lot of hours, you're able to make um, space for X, Y, and Z. So with your friends or to make a call with your family, you can kind of um, really slot in the things that you care about. Um, and for me, it didn't work for me to be freelance. It was great because I had like one project after the next and I was a- able to be really um, thorough about these ideas. But I also just know how I work as a creative person and that, um, you know, like not attaching myself to a schedule was actually something that is really helpful. And this is a really basic idea. And so the failures that I had with maybe some collaborations or projects that I wanted to uh, take off the ground, 
um, it was really about creating structure around those things. And um, that that was actually really it's it's really great to also have that. And like you learn about a, a, some, you learn about a person and what they care about when you're making a project together. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Well, I, I really identify with the um, question of structure. Yeah. Because having, you know, had structured jobs for like truly 30 years and then moving to something that's more uh, consulting, freelance, I find that the thing that dogs me literally every yeah. day yeah. is um, what have I set aside time for? What did I get sucked into that I mm-hmm. didn't mean to get sucked into? Mm-hmm. And how do I get out of the, <laughs> how do I get, um, how do we create structure and knowing that if, if I need to impose it on myself, it's not something I'm good at. So yeah. it's, um, it is, it is my like actual bear of this exact moment in time trying to, trying to figure that out. And, um, I know there's an answer mm-hmm. and I know it has, it can't be total structure that I create cause it's just not like, I don't live that way, yeah. but somehow I have to pull back and create some structure get things done yeah yeah I mean for me it was really helpful to just uh start working in a working space rather than at home and that's a really basic idea but it happened in a really great way where I was given a membership at the wing Uh and I love the wing and uh, I love their programming um and so it was nice I started going there and started um you know it moved me away from the distractions that I have at home which meant think because I'm a chef I'd like think about some elaborate drink or snack that I wanted to make myself (laughs) and then work on some stuff and then think about the next thing that I wanted to make so it was really important to get out of my space yeah I I walked into a space in um, Bushwick of this incredible uh, design group called a creative agency called Art Camp Mm -hmm. and it had been a yoga studio so it's like wood floors that are have a high sheen white walls high ceilings and there's nothing mm. and every and there's three <laughs> desks and every night they take the desks down Whoa. and every morning they put the desks up in a different configuration and I'm like this is what I'm missing <laughs> I need a complete white space with nothing that breaks Studio. down and is recreated yeah. and then like my mind will be clear and now that I'm like stuck on this I'm like okay that's the answer but of course it's not the answer anyway the last question is who would you um, elect to the um, Speaking Broadly Hall of Fame? I always look for a woman oh. who inspires and why she inspires. Um, the Hall of Fame. So tell me more about this Hall of Fame, like what this means, so I can like then think about who I'd want to pop in there. It's um, just someone who you admire, who mm-hmm. helped shape your journey, or who is your North Star? Um, my North Star is definitely, this is really, I think, cheesy, but my mom, my mom. Go mom. Yeah, my mom is amazing. And, you know, I, I've shared about like how difficult I have been. Um, but she, you know, all, just thinking about my, I mentioned my grandmother who passed away, just thinking about their lives uh, is just so staggering to me. The amount of like things that I'm trying to accomplish, uh, comparing them to what she has and raising six kids and then now having seven grandchildren and uh you know she's so incredible like us you know our conversations that we have now are so beautiful because they're about us as people not about our dynamic as mother and child and how to be the best child or the best mother it's just what do you want to accomplish um what do you she just retired I'm like what do you want to work on what do you want to see and just having her around in New York is just so grounding for me. I'll come send her to New York sometimes. And she loves to just be a, a, a fly on the wall. And um, for her to see the work that I'm doing in New York is so huge for me. 
Uh, but also knowing what she's done too. She was a, um, a Filipino dancer. She was a, a folk dancer in the Philippines as a younger woman and traveled around the world and was really diligent about her craft and helped me really be prideful in my heritage. Um, she was a Bayanihan dancer, and that's uh, a, the national dance troupe of the Philippines. That's actually how she met my father. And so the idea of, um, you know, thinking about her here and what she's accomplished is like, I wonder what she would have accomplished if she was living in New York and had the resources that I had. And so um, she's incredible, and I, I miss her a lot. And so I think about her and her work all the time. She helped me. with. She's like a hobbyist who has... You know, she would do floral arrangements and make wedding cakes and raises uh, birds. Like, she has, like, a huge orchid collection. She's incredible. So I feel like if she had the resources one does in New York, um, I, I'd be really happy to see what she could come up with. It sounds like she's doing pretty darn well in, yeah. in California. Yeah. And hobbies, boy. Hobbies are hobbies are a tough one. Do you have any hobbies? Uh, yeah, I think all of my hobbies I've, in, I've, I've sort of put into my, my work um, so I feel like that's the scope of what I, uh, you know, you mentioned that. All of them. Yeah, yeah, all of them. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, that is the wrap up for this week of Speaking Broadly. Thank you, Angela, so much for joining me today. And um, thank you, David Tatashore, the awesome, our awesome engineer. And uh, you know where to find me on social at FW Scout. If you've got suggestions of people you'd like to um, hear on Speaking Broadly, let me know. Or suggestions on the show, always want to hear them. And I'm sure you're going to want to um, follow Angela because she is amply, impressively inspiring. Where can people find you? Um, you can check me out on Instagram. Uh, my Instagram handle is swimsuit underscore issue. It's a Sonic Youth song. Don't get it twisted. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it for today. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.